Point Made, the podcast from Centre Point, by young people, for all people. Centre Point is the UK's leading youth homelessness charity. At Centre Point, we believe no young person's life should be defined by homelessness. We give young people the support they need to heal and grow no matter what. For over 50 years, we've been the centre point for change, personal and political. Everyone has their part to play, with young people leading the way. This podcast has been created by young people with lived experience of homelessness. We'll be shining a spotlight on some of the issues that affect us. We hope to challenge and change some of the stereotypes and bring others with us as part of a movement to end youth homelessness for good. Welcome to Point Made, the Centrepoint podcast by young people for all people. I'm Frankie and I'm a policy and research assistant with Centrepoint. Last year, more than 46,000 young women aged 16 to 24 presented to their local authority as they were homeless or at risk of homelessness. We know that the main drivers and experiences of support for homelessness can be different for young women. However, these specific experiences are often overlooked. To address this, Centrepoint is launching a new report called In Her Shoes, which explores the homelessness and housing experiences of young women using in-depth qualitative interviews with young women and key stakeholders. In today's episode of Point Made, we will be talking about the issues faced by young women experiencing homelessness in the UK and what can be done to support them effectively. But before we get started, I'd like to introduce our panel. Um, Starting on my left. My name's Caitlin. Um, I currently live in Centrepoint's Independent Living Scheme. Um, I'm Bethany. I'm a former resident of Centrepoint, but I now live independently. I'm Fran. I work for the Housing First team at Solis. And I'm Martha and I work at Shelter in the research team and I'm going to speak about our report that went out last year um, called Fobbed Off that looked at women's experiences of um, housing and homelessness. Great, thanks everyone. So to start off I'd just like to ask Caitlin uh, firstly, how do you think young women experience homelessness differently to young men? Um, I think automatically when people think of homelessness they don't automatically think about women. Um, I think it's kind of a known, it's more of an a male image. Um, I think homelessness for women is just a bit more vulnerable. I think women in general feel more vulnerable. I think being homeless just adds that that extra bit on top of it. Um, I think a big thing as well, like homeless people who are working as well, like women get paid less than men, which I think is very obvious and known. Um, so I think in that ways it does impact women as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's men earn about 8% more than women in work at the moment in the UK. It's ridiculous. Um, and is, is that something that you found as well, Bethany? Um, I think personally in my experience, like, uh, so being a mother, I think a lot of the time it might be perceived that maybe women tend to be more favoured and receive more help um, in terms of in that situation. But I think there are still a lot of risks in a lot of like the temporary accommodations and still a lot of risk in the accommodation where women live. So they can still experience that isolation, the, the like a lot of the similar issues that men face. So it's, I've, I guess at times it could be a bit more hidden and like not as visible as men because I guess they will be on the streets, but women will be inside places and it will be um, something that is just not seen um, or maybe spoken about as much. Absolutely, yeah. 
that kind of hidden homelessness is definitely something that's more common for women, it seems. And I suppose what you're saying about the... Um, if you do have those kinds of accommodations with your child and things like that, it's like if you're lucky enough to get an accommodation that's suited to you in that way as well. Um. Yeah, no, I just wanted to pick up on that because I think um, everything that you've been saying is exactly what we have seen through the fobbed off research that I mentioned, but also at Shelter more widely, the support that we do with, with women experiencing or, or suffering through the housing emergency um, so you mentioned about temporary accommodation. We know that women are disproportionately stuck homeless in TA. So six in 10 homeless adults living in TA in England are women. That's about 70, over 74,000 um, women, despite only making up half the general population. Um, we've touched on, you know, being more vulnerable. We know that domestic abuse is a near universal experience for women who become homeless. Um, and I think it's important when we're talking about young um, young people and young women, we need to remember that a lot of them will be parents, um, you know, as you spoke about in your own experience. So um, that's looking after yourself, but also your children as well when you're going through that homelessness experience. And another thing I just wanted to mention was around um, living in a space that is harming your mental or your physical health. So we know that one in four single women with children live in a home that's harming either their mental health or their physical health, which is actually two times higher than for any other households. So there's some real key issues that we're seeing for women and knowing that they are disproportionately affected in those ways. And like you said, housing unaffordability, there are issues with that with all genders, but with the income disparities that we see for women, we know that that's just making things even harder. Women are more likely to claim benefits. So freezes to LHA rates over the years, they're going to be hitting women harder. So they're some of the things that we, we're really concerned about. Absolutely, yeah. I think from my point of view, um, often women aren't listened to and not believed. There's gatekeeping of services within housing and a kind of attitude of prove it. Like if you say you've been through domestic abuse, they want police reports. But actually, legally, you don't have to report to the police. You just have to turn up and explain what's going on. So I think also like you mentioned, hidden homelessness. Women are more likely to be sofa surfing, they're more likely to be sex working for somewhere to sleep, um, and they're more likely to be facing multiple disadvantage, particularly women with no recourse to public funds. Yeah, definitely. And when there's that intersection, it just makes everything so much harder. Absolutely. Um, and we know that despite the large number of women experiencing homelessness, there is a significant lack of women-specific homelessness services in England, with only 10% of services providing female-only accommodation. Um, Martha, what do you think about the housing options that are available for young women? Yeah, so we, as part of our research, we spoke with um, women, um, well, our peer researchers who had their own lived experiences of the housing emergency went out and spoke to women in Birmingham, Bristol and Sheffield, and we heard time and time again about the dissatisfaction with the housing options available to women. So a real lack of suitable accommodation, whether that's housing that's miles from your children's school or it's poorly connected to transport or the transport that it's connected to is actually really expensive and that stops you getting around um, or the housing that you're being offered is in an area that you think is dangerous and you wouldn't want to live there yourself. Um, and I think the real issue here around this lack of options is due to the serious lack of social housing that we have. Um, so we've got 1.2 million households in England on waiting lists for social housing. And last year, <clears throat> excuse me, just over 6,000 social homes were built. So you can see that 
without social housing, people are just stuck in this constant struggle to keep a roof over their heads. Home ownership is just out of reach for most people. Um, and private renting is just notoriously expensive, um, no matter what age and gender you are. So, um, and that was something that the women told us that we worked with is that, you know, the vast majority of them were suffering with their finances, having a difficult time trying to manage everything. And like I said, freezes to LHA and the benefit cap are leaving women really struggling to cover those housing costs. Yeah, absolutely. And on that, um, kind of the the qualities of the housing that there is as well is that an issue that you guys had or particularly Bethany Bethany you're saying you moved into independent accommodation was it quite difficult to kind of find somewhere that was affordable or that was suitable for what you wanted so like at the moment um so I am living in um like a council property and um yeah like for my experience like it is something that is good but the build-up towards that was something like um I would say that I would say that the properties that I got were good before that, like the temporary accommodation, they were okay. But I would say, but it's just the lot of instability. So a lot of moving around, like my son was five and I think we were moving like almost every year of his life. And it's just constantly moving, constantly finding nurseries, constantly look, um, you know, like, cause, and it's really disruptive for me personally as well, because Throughout that time, I was also in education as well. So it's like I'm doing my A-levels, but then I'm moving to like different houses and different boroughs. And I don't think there is that much um, consideration to like, you know, you have your own life. It's not just every, I think there's an assumption that every kind of like young mum is kind of um, like, have maybe has insecure employment or insecure like I actually do my A-levels I'm trying to like get into uni but in the end it did work out but I think just a lot of that insecurity in terms of always moving somewhere was not helpful at all like it was one of those things where it's like I know it could have been avoided by just um, really taking into account like you're you're in education and it's not like you're just not doing anything it was kind of like you're being treated as the same as everyone else but when you're in education, you really need that stability because it's so you're re- it's really likely that you can drop out easily if you're not like resilient enough to kind of keep going with that. Yeah, definitely, and they should be kind of supporting you to carry on with that. And was there points when you were having to travel quite far to keep up with your A levels, or were you trying to move? Yeah, I guess it was more that I would be told like oh, um, say I was going to sixth form in Lewisham and they'll be like, oh, we've found a place in Croydon. And I said, that's not suitable at all. And it's like, I don't want to live there, not based on like quality or whatever it is, like what other people might be saying. It's literally like, that means I would literally need to stop going to sixth form. And sixth forms cannot like just, you're doing your A-levels, you already started. They can't just take, like take you in another sixth form. So I think it's, more just like a, just a lack of in, like consideration to like what you have going on. Um, there was just no consideration to that, and you kind of had to always plead. Yeah, no, I think that that that's exactly why the report that we wrote is called "Fobbed Off" because <clears throat> so many of the women that we spoke to with the research have just felt that when they were going, when we're talking about what housing options are available, let's think about the support, the places that people are going to to learn about those housing options and get that help to get into a safe, secure home. And so much of the time, people were finding that they were being fobbed off, they were being spoken to rudely by professionals who were supposed to be there to help them. You know, they were, in the worst cases, re-traumatized, you know, by professionals that should have helped them. You know, some of the stories 
stories that we heard were so shocking about people being told about their perpetrator. Oh, well, you know, it's your fault for being so obviously gay. The police had said this to one of the women that we spoke to. Um, you know, if he hasn't killed you by now, then he's not going to do it today, is he? You know, these are really like shocking stories that we're hearing about the way that people are being spoken to when they're going to places for help. And, you know, you have a right to live where you want to live and study and stay, stay, you know, it's kept in with your studies. So we need to make sure that people are treated in a way that helps them to keep that safe, secure home above their head. Exactly. It's exactly what Fran was saying earlier about women just not being taken seriously. I think as well there's a real need for frontline staff in housing and the police as well to be given training, to, to have a mandatory training, because these stories are not unique. They happen every single day in housing departments because there's not enough social housing, so services are literally gate-kept. I had a woman who went into... A local authority with a Marac housing letter which means her case is high risk domestic abuse with two children under three and she was turned away and that sort of thing happens every single day so it's not just about um, funding it's about cost so they will try and um, house you in the outskirts of London because it's cheaper but then what if you are studying and you can't afford the fares or you can't afford the fares to take your children to the school where they've got a bit of security what they're used to so children are having their education disrupted constantly changing schools constantly which affects their education but also they're often in substandard housing which also affects their life chances so you know it's a direct impact of everything on women and their children often and, this, and some of the shoddy accommodation that's damp and mouldy, and if you complain about it, then you're served with a notice to quit so that you know, someone else will live there, and then you're moving again. So everyone really deserves a safe space to live. Yeah. Can I just add to that, actually? Because I think what I found quite, to be honest, it was really hilarious to me, was that you, like... It's like they're trying to make you dependent on them. Like you're trying to improve your life so that you can be independent and not use the services. Because by like being in education and like actually, or your children going to school, or even like some people saying like in temporary accommodation, they'll be trying to work, but they can't really work because it's too expensive. And you're trying to be independent, but the way that it's all set up is like keeping you more dependent on the services, which I've always just found like so crazy and so confusing. And it's like, who's setting it up like this? Who's making it like this? Because some people are trying to move away from it, but they actually stuck like physically and can't actually get themselves out of the situation. I think also it locks people into a cycle of poverty quite often. Um, that that's the main the main thing I think is that there's no way out if there's not enough social housing to go around that is actually affordable. You get people in temporary accommodation for between two and five years, and in that time, like you said, they're constantly moving. Yeah, I mean, from a personal perspective, I lived in a hostel for just over two years. Um, and when it came to me moving out, the council just didn't bother. They were literally like a case, unless you show up with your bags and you've got nowhere else to go, we can't help you. And it was sort of the thing, well, if I do show up with my bags, you're just going to put me into another temporary accommodation for another two years. And it's a similar thing with the affordability. At one point, I was working two jobs, seven days a week, to afford to pay these prices for a hostel, for accommodation that was not adequate at all. And I was paying ridiculous, overworking myself for somewhere where I didn't feel, feel safe and I wasn't happy. And like you say, it is just such a repetitive cycle and there's not, 
it doesn't end. There's not like an end point. Like even now, I live in a centre point um, service, so I'm still not at my end point yet. Like I still don't have a permanent home forever. And it's at that point, like, when does it stop for young people, you know? Mm. Yeah, that lack of move-on options is really yeah. so difficult. And you mentioned about feeling unsafe in the accommodation that you were staying in. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so I lived in, um, I would say, a large-scale hostel, but I know there's bigger out there. So there was about 18, 19 residents in my accommodation. Um, it was about three floors. You had your own bedroom and your shared bathroom and kitchen. Um, majority of the people I shared kitchen with were men. Um, there was a lot of violence in the hostel that I lived in. Obviously, we can't... There's this big, big reputation that hostels are violent and it's not a nice place, but... You do create kind of a family network at the same time. I mean, you don't really have a choice because you live with these people, you share everything with them. Um, but I think from a perspective as a young person, I was 17 when I first moved into the hostel. Um, and I came from a family breakdown as well. So I had no, barely any support really, just like a close friends. Um, it was just awful. And the staff had no consideration for the fact that I was young and I had to share a bathroom with like, five men who were much older than me um, there was a lot of drug misuse in the building the rules were so ridiculously strict that you couldn't have visitors at certain times because of antisocial behavior you had to they had a curfew at one point like as a young person like that's not home mm. that's literally just a roof over your head and when you're paying extortionate amount you would expect better you'd expect to be able to call that place home but it was not like that yeah it sounds really isolating yeah it was awful I mean I lived in an area which I knew which I was very lucky in that sense they didn't send me far away like I knew my area but in that sense it's still just as isolating so I could never imagine how isolating it must feel in an area that you don't know yeah I think um the to shine a light on the experiences of of young women stuck in temporary accommodation as well like it your story is reminding me of of someone called or I'll call Sarah um who worked with shelter and she was in her early 20s and she was stuck in temporary accommodation with her two-year-old and four-year-old um sons and she I mean she it was stuck in the room with a shared kitchen and a shared bathroom but one time she you know she'd have to put her kids to bed early they're really young and then she has to sit in a room in the dark whilst her kids are, are sleeping she can't she can't go out she can't get a babysitter who's going to come and babysit in a room where it's you know sitting in a dark room with your kids and one time she went to the toilet and came back and there was a, a, a man having a mental health crisis in the room with her children so by that point she decides I'm not even going to go to the toilets anymore she's having to use a bucket you know these she was there for 15 months like that's the this is what people stuck in temporary accommodation are living through that's what women are going through and let's bear in mind as well that history of domestic abuse which is common in lots of women's homeless women's stories and then they're surrounded by men in a in a in a space where they're not getting that support you know that's a really dangerous environment where really she should be going to getting some getting some support and also some safety away from the perpetrator but that's not an environment where she's going to recover I think that's not an uncommon story. For every refuge space, there's between three and six referrals. So, and domestic abuse services miss 50% of the calls. They go to voicemail. So there's just not enough funding put into those services, first of all. But like you pointed out, a lot of the time, if families are put into hotel or hostel accommodation, they could be sharing with 
men and families and some of the men have just come out of prison some of them like say have drug and alcohol issues or mental health issues and it just puts them at further risk often so if there's not the refuge spaces available that's your other option which can re-traumatize you and your children and not necessarily safe either mm, definitely and all these reasons are why we're calling for um, local authorities and DLUC to allocate more funding for specific provision um, including women only and more refuge spaces and um, LGBTQ plus services because we know that people who might identify as non-binary don't really fit in either women or men's services and might not feel comfortable so yeah definitely need to um, accommodate for everyone's kind of individual needs. Um, so you were talking a bit about domestic violence and I just wanted to out um, I just wanted to highlight that last Friday was the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And um, we found that in the Centerpoint data bank that there are five times as many young women who lost their last accommodation due to domestic violence in England in um, 2021. Um, so I just wanted to ask Francesca, how do you think we can best empower young women who are survivors of domestic abuse? I think um, it's a holistic approach that's needed. I think quite often um, just the impact of domestic abuse without even being a young person can affect your self-esteem and your confidence. So I think there's work to do around that. But also, um, you know, support with accessing services, accessing benefits, accessing work and training um, and work experience, but also um, making them safe and often that really is sometimes feels like putting on a coat of armour every day and battling with housing, with police, with children's services, with adult social care because of how they operate. And so you have to really fight for young women and you have to teach them to fight for themselves. And that really comes with education and knowledge. If you've got some knowledge of what's priority need, what's vulnerability with regards to housing, I think we really need to equip women with the tools to be able to fight for themselves, but in the meantime, advocate for them and lobby for more funding where it's needed because these young women are bringing up the future generation and they're directly impacted by the policies that are constantly being passed and their life chances and those of their children are constantly affected by these. Yeah, absolutely. And we're definitely calling for more awareness of kind of like what support there is for people who are experiencing domestic violence, because some people kind of only think of the police and they might not have a great opinion of the police and domestic violence as well. So sometimes it feels like there's not really any any options there. Um, Martha, I know you were saying a bit about um, women being impacted by the benefit cap. Um, and I read a bit in your research about that affecting domestic abuse survivors as well. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the benefit cap, um, it disproportionately, well, it penalises uh, survivors of domestic abuse because oftentimes they're, they're moving from an in-work to an out-of-work household and so they're subject to the cap. So it's making financial situation that's already difficult even harder for women. Um, and just around empowering our survivors of domestic abuse, I think what we would be really advocating for, and it's what the women that we, that we spoke to, the peer researchers that we did the fobbed off research with, really felt strongly is that we need support services that are women-centered and are trauma-informed as well. So we avoid some of these negative experiences with support services that we've spoken about. Um, you know, really tackling this culture of disbelief that you touched upon, you know, it's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, but in this, we're seeing the opposite 
opposite of that. People are disbelieved, they're not trusted. And what does that do to you as a person when you're going there and being so vulnerable and telling your story? You know, it's not it's not good. Um, and we know that, and, and you touched on this at the start around how, when people think of homelessness, we traditionally, you know, it's dominated by the experiences of male rough sleepers. Um, and so often services can be tailored more towards men's needs. And evidence suggests that women do less well in services that are predominantly working with men. And that's another reason why we really need to think about what are the experiences that we've covered today and how can we tailor our support to better help women. And um, women-centered, I think really key to that is that we are providing opportunities that bring other women together to share their stories, to learn from one another, whether that's peer support networks and groups, you know, peer research opportunities, ways for people and women with lived experience to share their story and be heavily involved in the design of a service or the delivery of a service so they can share their, what they know about what's going on. And if you miss those voices, then the service is gonna, it's not going to be as helpful to the people that you're supposed to be helping. Also, I think because hostels are male-dominated, often women are targeted and then they suffer further exploitation or abuse from men within those hostels, sometimes just as simple as financial abuse. Um, I think what there is a real need for, and some secondary schools are doing this, is to do workshops around consent and what a healthy relationship looks like. Because often young women actually don't know those things and that's when they sometimes get into these types of relationships because they don't recognise the early flags that might be pointers towards a potentially abusive relationship. Could I just say the point on like um, financial abuse because I think that is like another one that is not really spoken about as much and I think there was something that was quite interesting actually because I did have a friend and she went through something she was dating somebody and she um I think everything was going okay but then she might have given him some type of money to save for her and then um he refused to like I think they got into like a small disagreement and he refused to give it back and they tried to report it to the police and then she didn't really feel as if she was being um, abused in any way, but they were like, okay, this is a, dom-. they were like, they labeled it like, this is a domestic abuse case, so we have to treat it as that. But all she was just trying to do was just trying to get her money back. And then I think in terms of this, they were like, well, we're going to treat it as a domestic abuse case. I said, okay, she was like, well, in what way can I get my money back? And they said, well, you've got to go through the civil court. And then she said, so it, so then in the end, what ended up happening to her was she um, had a child. So it actually ended up being more like targeting her being a mum and like social services getting involved. And she was like, well, if we're going to treat this as a domestic abuse case and I'm a victim, if I'm a victim of this, then can I get my money back? It was on about that. And then um, they were like, no, we can't get your money back, but you're a victim. And I was like, it was just going round in circles. And it was like, and even to this point, I know that she hasn't got her money back. And yeah, it just got down to the point where, you know, like social services came and they were like, oh, well, there's not an issue with the child because you were dating this person they were not involved with you and your child it was just like you get you trusted someone and they didn't give your funds back so I think also as well it's like there could be that thing where it's not believed but also you're kind of labeled as that when you're looking for some other different type of support but they put a label on you that you you have was not trying to ask in the first place which I found quite just worrying and concerning at times yeah. And this is I say the police actually need some training as well. But also mm-hmm. what happens very often is women leave their homes 
the perpetrator may still be in that home. Children's services will give her a whole list of things she needs to do in order to keep her children safe. Um, and he may be offered a perpetrator programme, may not, but he can choose whether to interact with children's services or not. So it's almost like women are being punished for something that isn't their fault. Yeah. And as soon as you mentioned children's services, why there was even a need for children's services in that scenario, I don't know, but maybe there was the more person to the story. didn't live there, the person had never yeah. been interacting with the child, but it was like, and I think it's just, yeah, it's always that there's like, if you report it, it's like, oh, now this is a whole nother like job that you have to do and you have to be insuring stuff. And, and then, but they will like refuse not to actually help you and actually like contact that person and actually help you just get anything back from the situation. So yeah, it's hard. And is that fear as well, even yeah. if it's before you get to that point, it's like the fear of, of children's services, what's going to happen to my kids. Maybe it stops, you know, some of the, one of the stories and the women that we spoke, worked, that we did the research with, you know, it was only because her child said at school, I'm freezing to the teachers that they thought, hold on a sec, what's going on here? But the, the mother was like, I don't want to, I'm so scared if I lost my children, I don't want to come forward. And there is that, that fear, fear is really real for a lot of women, young women as well. Definitely. And it should be kind of there to support you, not kind of there seen as something scary that's going to penalise you or anything like that. Um, Fran, what you were saying about um, kind of um, educating young women to kind of notice these red flags earlier. This is something that the government's implemented very recently. So it's now changed from uh, PSHE to RSE, which is a lot more relationships focused. So hopefully kind of women of the future generations will be able to spot these red flags a lot sooner. Um, but also at Centrepoint, we have healthy relationships workers um, who I interviewed for the research as well, um, who has kind of run like seminars um, for groups of people and then also on a one-to-one -one basis to speak to young women and men and kind of speak to them about their relationships and kind of evaluate whether, whether it's truly healthy and if there's anything that's, you know, they could be doing better themselves or even or the other person, you know. Um, I don't know if either of you ever spoke to them. Okay, well, they're really lovely. Would recommend. <laughs> cool. So, um, moving on to kind of the last section here. Um, recently, the government announced that in the autumn budget, um, they plan to support people on universal credit to kind of increase their hours or their earnings. Um, but as we know, there can be many different barriers in the way, um, especially for vulnerable young women. So, um, Bethany, I just wanted to ask you. Um, what do you think that we can do to ensure young women are able to pursue their goals and find employment while pursuing, while they're um, experiencing homelessness? I think this is a very interesting question because I'm currently going through, not going through anything crazy, but just going through like a bit of a funny situation with Universal Credit because I think I was saying you guys about the assumption that um, all mothers are kind of maybe not in education or not doing that so and I actually know so many other mums in university and doing so like doing that stuff but I think from that assumption there isn't really any um written down um like policies around what it's like what it's actually like being um a mom and in education and the things the requirements that you need to do and the requirements that um you're, you're not supposed to do and um, the results are very different because some mums say I'm getting universal credit and I'm in uni. Some said oh, I've been completely eradicated from universal credit. They said no. Some say oh I'm eligible but like only for uh, my housing costs and and that is quite 
weird to me like why everyone's getting different results and um like I would be getting something but then a friend who's got twins would be getting nothing and it's not making any sense to me so I think there needs to be more like written down policies around what we're entitled to because that leads like some type of I guess discretion from like um like different uh, boroughs and different like um, work coaches to decide when it really shouldn't be them deciding it should be coming from like the top down and actually deciding okay this is the support that we have for them and um, and I don't know whether there's like a refusal to decide what is we're entitled to but um, yeah but they seem to know everything about when you're supposed to be looking for work and what age your child and all of this stuff but they can't tell you anything about the amount you're entitled to um, if you're at uni and I just find it a bit weird so yeah and it's not really allowing you to choose what kind of job that you want to do it's just kind of like get whatever's available they're not really helping you to get that education that you really want to get the job that you really want yeah because you can't I think it's weird it's like you're on universal credit but you can't work if you're in education because all your childcare goes on you being able to study and like I study quite an intense course so there isn't any time to work in fact there isn't really any time to do anything so like they and I think they do know that so it's kind of like um, but they but they'll tell you about uh, universal credit is a it's a active and working benefit, but we can't work, but we're entitled to it. So it's so like it's just round round and round in circles, and and the work coaches don't even know what you, what to do because every time I I interact with them, it's something different. So yeah. Yeah, it sounds a bit like that gatekeeping again as well. People being told different things from different. I feel like the benefit system has changed from what's meant to be a support support process to a punitive measure. And I think that, you know, forcing people into low-paid jobs or zero-hours contracts is going to make more people homeless, for one. And also there's, you know, if someone is trying to improve their life by doing voluntary work or going into education or getting some work experience, that shouldn't go against them, but it quite often will. So I think, and also childcare, like, you know, how are you, how are you going to expect people to work longer hours if there's no childcare available for them and there's not enough childcare places for women to put their kids? As far as I know, there's no such thing as weekend childcare. So you'll be, the weekday is all you can use to go in education. And I think it's not impossible to work part-time and be in education and have a child but it's not possible in terms of the childcare provision there isn't enough of it to and it's just expensive like it's just not even work because you probably your whole salary will probably go on it and then you'll have nothing left so yeah they don't they're not taking in that into account a lot of the time and yeah it just leads you to kind of either get confused or just struggle on um like tackling with them what you should what you need at the time yeah, one person I spoke to for the research was saying it was quite, it kind of put them off even trying to go into education if they're like, I'm worried I'm going to lose my benefits and they had quite low self-esteem and didn't really, you know, they weren't confident enough to fully back themselves to fight for it. So having that prospect of losing all our money was too scary to kind of, you know, fight it and choose to try to get education anyway. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really sad situation. Um, Caitlin, I know that you're at university at the moment, is that? Do you feel that you're supported enough? Do you think that financially that you manage okay? Um, I think financially I manage okay. I mean, I, I don't claim universal credit or anything. I was basically not entitled. Um, I mean, I have a very good supportive network, um, student finance, 
has been quite supportive, surprisingly. Um, so I get a maximum student finance, and um, so I've been managing fine. But I know previously um, I used to claim housing benefit when I lived in my hostel, and it was awful because I had a zero hours contract, so you had to submit pay slips every four weeks, and then they'd say, OK, you owe this amount because you earned this amount this week, but we owe you this amount. And in the end, I decided to work two jobs so I didn't have to claim benefits because it was more stress than what it was worth and I found myself getting into arrears and but now I'm lucky enough where I'm quite financially in a good position to not need to claim anything mm. yeah that's great and that you have had that support to to get there definitely yeah, exactly. I think for a lot of young women especially with children who don't have maybe an extended family or a good support network they're literally living hand to mouth and going without food to feed their children you know, having to go to food banks and having to try and find money for clothes and shoes for their children when it's just living on such a basic amount of money. And I think the media feeds into this kind of stigma about young single mums and also people who claim benefits, you know, scroungers this and scroungers that. And so then it's almost like you're going into a hostile environment already just to claim benefits. And then you might get sanctioned if you can't make an appointment or you know you're already getting as a young person much less money than a person over 25 would be getting and yet you're supposed to survive on that somehow with the cost of living crisis with universal credit not covering housing benefit housing costs the way that housing benefit used to so a lot of people are dipping into their living fund in order to top up their rent to keep a roof over their heads yeah i think with what caitlin was saying i think um, and I think it's quite sad, like well, what you were saying about someone feeling that going into education will make them worse off. And actually, like, um, I would really encourage like anyone in temporary accommodation. I think being in education is probably the best and only thing you can really do at that point, because it's like um, at least you'll get a little bit more um, support and help from other services because it's been a lot more... Um, it's just been a lot more easier that way because being on benefits is not like the uh, the best thing but obviously education is not for everyone but I would say like if the person can and they want to like they definitely should because the support is a lot better if you're in that situation. I also feel like education is the key to to earning a decent amount of money and also to getting out of poverty because otherwise you're just going to be locked in this cycle of poverty and although it's really difficult and getting more difficult I imagine um, I feel like for young women bringing up children you're also providing a really good role model to your children Um, you know they're seeing something different maybe to other young mums so I think that um, whatever education you can go into if that can equip you for a future that's what you're building on isn't it obviously a future for you and your children Sorry, but I think, like, coming from a personal perspective, when I lived in temporary accommodation, nothing was mentioned about education. If you asked me two years ago where I would want to be, I would have, I would don't know what I would have said because it was never an option for me to get education or go to uni. Like, I didn't have my A-levels. I went straight to an apprenticeship. Like, now, I, in five years' time, well, probably less, I'm going to have a good, stable career. But if you would have asked me that two years ago... I don't know what I would have said because I was never told that education was an option. I was told you go to work, you claim housing benefit, that's that, that's how it is. Yeah, that came up a lot in the research, just 
young women not aware of what choices that they had, what options were available and, and the support that's there to help them to do this if that's what they want to do. But also I think what brings young women into homelessness is often unsafe environments, whether that's from parents when you're growing up or whether it's from an abusive relationship. And so sometimes it's just surviving. Sometimes you're just so used to just surviving that you don't necessarily think about the wider picture. And I feel that's where professionals can come in and support young women to have aspirations and to work towards them. Yeah, and I think on that, when you think about women in that group that have come from a difficult, maybe abusive um, household, it's like um, being told to go out and work more isn't necessarily where they're going to be at physically, mentally. You know, they deserve time to process being homeless, having come from an abusive environment, taking that time to recover from that. You know, just because you've left maybe the, the place with the perpetrator doesn't mean the abuse and the effects of it stop. You know, we need to remember that. And I think that's also for the children as well. If you were to have children, is it right that they need to be in nursery for eight hours a day whilst you pick up more work? You know, maybe those children also deserve the right to have time with their parent, their mum to process and recover from what they've been to. Not all children will witness the abuse if, if but for those that have, you know, or becoming homeless you know so I think it's like let's actually remember that what people are going through that we're saying go out and, and increase your hours um and I think you know if we really want to help women to pursue their goals then we need a, a system where they can afford to live where they want to live live near to their former home if that's where they'd like to be live near to their children's schools or to their support networks that's the that's the real way to help um, women to pursue their goals and thrive and so that means you know, damaging welfare cuts, like scrapping the benefit cap. We need to do that immediately. That's disproportionately affecting them. We need to end the freeze on housing benefit. And ultimately, of course, we need more social housing that we've all said, because otherwise there aren't those homes for people to go to. So they're, they're the key things. And then on top of that, I would just say, because it was such an important thing for us and our, you know, the women that we work with for Fobbed Off, it's also about having that women-centered support available so women feel better seen, they feel heard, they feel understood, and they can start building some of those support networks, those peer networks as well, to get them through those experiences of homelessness. Yeah, exactly what you were saying, like how you get your kind of family and you're in it together, and it's quite, you build up those relationships and kind of keeps you going. And I think by kind of offering that like holistic approach as well, like considering all those things like the area and like, education children all those kinds of things so important and other things as well so things to do with like identity you know somebody is like lgbtq or has experiences of trauma and doesn't want to be in certain areas or you know things like that it all needs to be taken into consideration as well yeah making sure that those services are inclusive taking an inclusive approach and that they're accessible so people feel able to come to them if they feel that's the service for them, that there's specialist support if they would like that specialist support. And also that the service thinks about, okay, well, when are this, when are they doing the school run? You know, let's like make sure that it's accessible in those ways too. Exactly, exactly. I think as well for young LGBTQ people, um, there's not really enough specific services for them. You've got the Albert Kennedy Trust, you've got Stonewall Housing, you've got one LGBTQ night shelter in the whole of London. And I've heard from young LGBT people that they would rather be on the streets than be in a hostile environment because some of those hostile environments are so homophobic and so transphobic that they're in danger within those environments. But I also think it's about the design. Like for hostels, there are new hostels being built that have a communal area that's just for women, a bathroom area that's just for women, 
Um, so it is possible to, to build these spaces. It may not be possible within existing hostels because you know some of them have their own room with maybe a shower pod in, but they don't all. Um, we really need to think about safety more for women, and we know that a lot of the times in temporary accommodation and in unsafe environments. Yeah, definitely. And just to kind of round everything off, I wanted to ask Caitlin and Bethany, what changes would you like to see in the future to support young women, or kind of what would have made things easier for you guys when when you were experiencing homelessness? Um, I think female-only hostels. I think if that would have been offered to me from the get-go wouldn't have questioned it mm. and I think um like we've said educating young women I wasn't told about anything I was given one option that was that you go that way that's how it is there was no okay what about the next step the, the next step's never spoken about and even when it is spoken about they're like well you're on your own now sort of thing so I think providing more education for young women and female only hostels I'd say would be the biggest things I would suggest yeah definitely yeah I would definitely agree with Caitlin because in my experience that like, I've been in just um, female-only living spaces and it's made like a massive difference in terms of not feeling um, like unsafe at all times. You can feel unsafe in other reasons, but a lot of the time when that is included, it often is because some type of male is involved or someone is trying to bring someone there, but it's not as bad. But I couldn't imagine living in a space where men already there and you're fearing already the people in your home and that's really difficult so I would definitely like echo that and say like that is something that um yeah it should definitely be pushed for um at the forefront yeah yeah how are you supposed to kind of focus on yourself when you feel unsafe when all that's kind of going on around you safety's got to be number one definitely cool um so yeah, I feel like we've had a really quite widespread conversation here. We've talked about quite a lot of like the barriers in the way of you know young women getting their education, barriers to housing, and um, particularly domestic violence. All all quite yeah quite a wide variety of things we've spoken about. Um, but sadly, we have to bring the discussion to a close. And I just want to thank you all for for being here and taking part in the research. Um, and I hope that those watching and listening enjoyed the discussion. Um, our research that's launching is called In Her Shoes and it's about young women's experiences of homelessness and it um, further highlights a lot of the issues that we've spoken about here today. Um, and yeah, this podcast and research aims to be part of the discussion about improving and preventing homeless experiences for young women and Centrepoint is keen to encourage others to be part of this dialogue. Cool. Thank you everyone for taking part. Thanks for listening. If you want more information, then visit our blog at www centerpoint.org slash blog don't forget centerpoint offers free advice via the centerpoint helpline to anyone aged 16 to 25 who is homeless or at risk of homelessness call us free on 0808 8000 we're open monday to friday 9am to 5pm you can also leave us a message on our website at www.centerpoint.org.uk slash youth homelessness slash get help now.